The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. We're going to discuss some things. Tonight we will discuss Falconelli's Conundrum and the mystery of January 6th. And uh, many people might not be aware that January 6th is a very important date for various reasons. Uh, one of the main reasons is because this is an old Christian celebration called Epiphany that occurs on January 6th and speaks of the baptism of Jesus. Uh, so this was an important event in, in the biblical context, and it was an important event before the time of the Bible. And this is uh, where we're going to look tonight. We're going to trace down this trail, because you see the date January 6th and the celebration that we call Epiphany now have ancient roots that go back to before the time of Christ. And there's different associations made with it. Uh, and it has to do with the alchemical processes. So, with that being the case, we're going to explore this line of thought. And tonight we're going to be reading from The Mysteries of the Great Cross of Hende, Alchemy and the End of Time. Uh, an excellent book written by Jay Widener and Vincent Bridges. And uh, we're going to explore several avenues of thought here. We're going to look at uh, what exactly is this conundrum of Foconelli's. And when we get to the meat of the matter of what Falconelli's conundrum is, we'll see that it ties to this whole January 6th date. There's a very good reason that January 6th was used back in 2021 as the date for this alleged insurrection that took place in Washington. Uh, this was a ritual event, folks. No doubt in my mind now that I've traced back the roots of what the uh, true importance is of the Epiphany date here. And we'll explore those avenues of thought tonight. So we're going to get into the reading. I hope you are all well out there. So let's get into it. The strongest impression of my early childhood, I was seven years old an impression of which I still retain a vivid memory, was the emotion aroused in my young heart by the sight of a Gothic cathedral. The opening words of the first chapter, which is called The Mystery des Cathedrals, places us firmly in the personal realm. Falconelli, from the very first sentence of the book, strikes us as a real person with a message to communicate. I was immediately enraptured by it. I was in ecstasy, struck with wonder, unable to tear myself away. Here is passion, the beginning of a lifelong involvement, an attempt to get to the heart of the magic of such splendor. It never faded. Falconelli tells us, I have never acquired a defense against a sort of rapture when faced with those beautiful picture books erected in our closets and raising to heaven their pages of scriptured stone. And so, in his third paragraph, Falconelli clearly tells the reader the reason for his work. And he says here, quote, In what language, by what means, could I express my admiration? 
How could I show my gratitude to those silent masterpieces, those masters without words and without voice, end quote? How better indeed than to write a volume explicating for those who could read the symbolism the great teachings contained in those pages of sculptured stone. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Of course, we are talking about the Gothic cathedrals, and particularly the Notre Dame Cathedral here. Uh, this is what's being referred to. This is, was what uh, Falconelli was talking about uh, primarily in the book, The Mystery of the Cathedrals. He talked about various different Gothic cathedrals, but primarily the Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, this was a very important landmark, and it was, and still is to a certain degree, although many of the, much of the statuary has been destroyed since that fire that happened a couple of years back now. But uh, it's an alchemical textbook, folks, if you know how to read the symbols. And that is exactly what Falconelli was pointing out and leading us back to some older works. So let's continue reading here. And once again, for those just tuning in, we're reading from the, a book by J. Widener. The book is titled The Mysteries of the Great Cross of Hende, Alchemy and the End of Time, written by J. Widener and the late Vincent Bridges. And uh, we're going to explore this whole January 6th idea, and you'll see why as we get a little further into the reading here. So let's continue on. But of course, as Falconelli immediately reminds us, they are not entirely without words or voice. If those stone books have their sculptured letters, their phrases in bas-relief, and their thoughts in pointed arches, nevertheless they speak also through the imperishable spirit which breathes from their pages. This imperishable spirit makes them clearer than their younger brother's manuscripts and printed books, because it is simple in expression, naive and picturesque in interpretation, a sense purged of subtleties, of allusions of literary ambiguities. It is the voice of the imperishable spirit, Falconelli suggests, that speaks the Gothic of the stones. He links this emotive language to the grand theme of music by suggesting that even Gregorian chants can, quote, but add to the emotions which the cathedral itself has already aroused, end quote. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Essentially, this is invoking the idea of frequency, vibration, things that we uh, have talked about here before. Uh, th this is important. It all has to do with resonant frequencies and, and different frequency bands. Our reality is a frequency-based reality. Uh, so understanding this, you can uh, um, have a little better context as to some of the messaging being conveyed here. We could look at these stone statues, at these works of art in stone, and see the symbolism being conveyed, and we can understand there's certain resonances that may or may not strike certain people uh, from being able to interpret the symbols presented there. And this is this comes down to, you know, that whole concept that we've discussed before. Either you get it or you don't, with a lot of these different things. And there comes a point on everybody's journey where something clicks, and they get it, and they understand a symbol that maybe they didn't really quite understand before, but now they understand it on a conscious level. Because many of these symbols that are used here, they hit upon archetypal themes that resonate with all people. 
and you your unconscious mind recognizes it as this archetype and reacts to it in a subconscious way but you don't realize it on the conscious level until you do a little study into symbology and you begin to garner some insights into how it is that the alchemists communicated with these symbols and you know the various other uh, groups that have hijacked these symbols and used them uh, the secret society groups the mystery schools all of these different places when you begin to see this pattern come together it becomes very clear pattern recognition after a while you begin to see the same themes emerging over and over again so this is one of the things that uh, Falconelli points out in this you could understand if you know if you studied the ancient artwork if you know what the art represents uh, and it largely it represents mythology folks that's the important thing it's the archetypal interpretation in mythology that many of these things represent so if you understand the story behind it you might catch the inference if you don't know the story and this is where we are today in the modern world because much of us don't really know much of anything about the mythologies we don't catch what the reference is so you you don't get the inference by looking at the symbol because you don't know the story so if you see a, a statue that represents artemis and you don't know the story of artemis well you're going to miss a lot of the context and you might miss the inference that leads you down a trail pointing to some other path here to follow as a train of thought with uh, communicating different messages so with that being the case that's essentially what's done in stone in the cathedrals it's art it's symbols being used to communicate a message and uh, it's the placement of the different statuary and stuff the the placement of where their eyes are looking and, and this kind of thing that leads you on this trail and it's a, a great mystery for sure these cathedrals uh, the way that the gothic art is set up it, it really is a, a, a brilliant type of a, a textbook uh, leading you down a trail for different alchemical streams okay and we say streams what we mean is these are streams of knowledge that have come forward through the years and they're carried in various places you might not expect much like art uh, surrealist art in a lot of ways is a uh, a medium that is used for the communication of alchemical processes and alchemical information through the years so it's it's kind of an art in understanding the symbols involved and a lot of it requires a classical education or you know what could approach to a classical education where you learn about the classic mythology and stuff like that uh, which like I had said most of us don't really have a basis in anymore so I'm trying to remedy that in my own life where uh, I'm learning uh, more about some of the ancient Greek myths and the Romanized versions thereof because that's you know another important filter that you come across through this uh, the Romanized version of the Greek myths is a very important communication tool for those that like to leverage these type of archetypes and archetypal information. At the very beginning of the book, Falconelli slyly informs us that he has personally experienced the voice of the imperishable spirit that gives its auditor the ability to understand the Gothic of the stones. He knows, in the ancient sense of gnosis, the secret behind the symbolism. Here, in fact... We are reminded of Wolfram von Eichenbach's insistence in Parzival that the mystery of the grail, the Lapsit 
Exilus, could be understood only by one who had learned his ABCs without the aid of black magic. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. What this is inferring is that in order to understand the symbolic language built into the cathedrals or in order to understand uh, the alchemical messaging that's being brought forward through time, you have to put the work in. It's through intense study and research and learning that you come to an understanding of the symbols, but there are shortcuts, and this is what he would refer to here as being black magic, that some have taken. Now, you don't reap the full benefits of the understanding of the symbol that way, but many do take shortcuts, and largely the people in control and positions of power today have taken the shortcuts to arrive in places of power so that they could manipulate people through the use of this different knowledge, and they've done so pretty successfully at this point, but they're still missing the boat here so to say. So let's read on and see what else Falconelli says. Only those who have had the initiatory and illuminatory experience can interpret the language of the mystery. From this subtle declaration of intent, Falconelli moves on to a bold statement on the value of the Gothic cathedral as a vast concretion of ideas in which the religious, secular, philosophical, or social thoughts of our ancestors can be read. He develops this idea by showing how the sacred and the profane mingled in the civic uses of the cathedrals from guild rituals to funerals to commodities markets. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. Many don't know the cathedrals. They were not just for religious services. Many things took place at these cathedrals. It was the public meeting house. Think about that. The public forum. Let's put it that way. The public forum, much like the internet today is supposed to be. It was the public forum, a place to exchange ideas, uh, to do commerce, to have uh, fellowship with your fellow human beings, and to also celebrate religious festivals and things like that. It was the, the common forum. It was the public forum where many of these things were done. Uh, so, like I said, there's there's always this inference, the, the internet, and particularly social media, this is the role that they're supposed to fulfill today. But yet, they're very lacking, aren't they? Because they, they don't have the spirit like the cathedrals did, as Falconelli had mentioned here. But let's continue on. In this shift, we sense a sleight of hand taking place under our very eyes. With dizzying suddenness, we have changed our focus from the nature and meaning of language and initiation to the practical details of a laboratory for their explication. The cathedral, we are told, is an original work of incomparable harmony, but not one, it seems, concerned entirely with religious observance. Falconelli assures us that along with the fervent inspiration, born of a strong faith, there exists an almost pagan spirit. This allows the cathedrals to express the thousand and one preoccupations of the great heart of the people in a way that reveals the declaration of its conscience, of its will, the reflection of its thoughts, and its most complex, abstract, essential, and autocratic. So far, in this first chapter, Falconelli sounds a little old-fashioned, a product of Hugo-esque Gothic Romanticism found from the mid-19th century to his readers in 
This would have sounded quaint, even comfortingly antiquarian. Falconelli continues to play on this assumption on the part of his readers, and even references the classic scene in Victor Hugo's Notre Dame de Paris by shifting his focus to the Feast of Fools. Gonna pause for a second there, folks. So the Feast of Fools. Remember the Feast of Fools. Keep that in the back of your mind here. Here, for the first time, we encounter Falconelli's chief literary device, the use of italicized words and phrases to create a hidden metatext that can be read independently of the rest of the words on the page. As an example of this, let's look at just the emphasized words and phrases in the last three paragraphs of section one of the Mystery of the Cathedrals chapter. Now pay attention, folks. These are only the italicized words that Falconelli used in the last three paragraphs of the first chapter here. But pay attention because this is hugely important. It's kind of like secret code written throughout the book. So if you notice this and, you know, you go back and you read through Mystery of the Cathedrals again, you might find some whole new meaning in there by being able to just pick out the italicized words and reading them together and seeing what comes up. So here's just the italicized words from those last three paragraphs. Feast of Fools, Disguised Science, Triumphal Chariot of Bacchus, Feast of the Donkey, Master Aliboron, the asinine power which was worth to the church the gold of Arabia, the incense and the myrrh of the land of Saba, mystifiers of the land of Saba or Kaaba, image makers, procession of the fox, feast of the donkey, flagellation of the alleluia, sabbaths, procession of the shrovetide carnival, delivery of Shalmont, Infantry Dijonet, Mad Mother, their buttocks, ball game. So there's all the italicized words, and you'll notice that it seems to all be describing one particular event or thing. And this is a big clue from Falconelli. He's talking about what's known as the Feast of Fools, and it has some other connotations and different events associated with it. So let's read on because this is where we'll find out about Falconelli's conundrum. If we cannot solve Falconelli's first symbolic conundrum, then we haven't much hope of interpreting the rest of the book. Indeed, if we can assume that he is playing fair with us, then an important, perhaps crucial key should lie in the initial group of emphasized words and phrases. So how do we read it? The first point that jumps out is that Falconelli is drawing our attention to two seasonal church festivals that are similar in tone and very pagan in origin. The first, the Feast of Fools, now familiar to millions from the Disney version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, seems to have been a holdover from the Roman Saturnalia. In the Middle Ages, it was celebrated as part of the Twelve Nights of Christmas, usually related to the Feast of the Epiphany. As this is the date given in Hugo, we may assume that it is the connection Falconelli is drawing for us. And I'm going to pause right there. The Epiphany, January 6th. Epiphany. The Feast of Fools. Did we not see a parade of fools on January 6th, 2021? Hmm? 
Let's read on here. This is making some interesting connections even in our modern day to the political circus that is the modern era right now and the things going on in Washington. So let's pay attention here and read on. The second, the Feast of the Donkey. I'm going to pause for a second. Donkey, which political party is represented by the donkey, folks? The second, the Feast of the Donkey, is part of the Easter celebration and traditionally marked the spring equinox or the Annunciation of the Virgin, Christ's Conception Day. Associated broadly with the ass that Jesus rode into Jerusalem during his proclamation as a descendant of David, and with the prophetic ass of Balaam, who declared that of this lineage, David's, a Messiah would come, the Feast of the Donkey, as Falconelli suggests, has much more ancient alchemical roots. Falconelli's metatext message points to the image makers, the mystifiers of the land of Saba, who are by the implication of their gifts, gold, incense, and myrrh, the Magi. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. The Magi, the donkey, the association here with Messiah, the feast of the donkey, the, the feast of fools, all these things interrelated, all related to this January 6th date, the Epiphany, tied to the Epiphany by the Magi. Okay, uh, so it's saying here the image makers... The image makers, the mystifiers of the land of Saba, who by implication are the Magi. Now it's saying the Magi, referring to the Magi in the Bible that brought these gifts to Jesus in the Bible story. But the Magi, in a broader sense, relates to the grand initiates, the uh, uh, very highly placed adepts within various mystery schools. Some would call them the Illuminati. Uh, so these would be highly adept personages within the Illuminati, the Magi. So this is hugely important. So this is saying that this tradition comes from the old mystery schools, goes way back, and it can be traced back to its alchemical roots from the Magi. So let's continue reading here. Falconelli then mentions a collection of hermetic holdovers with the Gothic Church as their theater that includes spinning tops, ball games, and other such apparently profane and body activities. He connects them to various Shrovetide, or pre-Lenten carnivals, and suggests that these are the last vestiges of the ancient semi-pagan feasts. If we read these three paragraphs without focusing on the italicized words, we have a sense that they are meant to inform us of certain pagan traditions connected with the cathedrals, but exactly what these are and what they mean remains elusive. We can read the paragraphs hundreds of times and be fairly comfortable in our interpretation of their meaning and yet miss the essential message if we do not look deeply and carefully into the references contained in those emphasized words and phrases. This is what makes the mystery of the cathedrals an initiatory text, a true alchemical document, and the guidebook to the hermetic quest for the grail stone of the wise, and which marks Falconelli as the last great master of the green language. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. The green language. This is uh, also referred to as the language of the birds. It's also known as phonetic Kabbalah. It's known as several other things. It's also co called twilight language. It's the study of symbology, it, the language of symbology. 
using coded clues and being able to tie the symbols to certain words and phrases is hugely important within this. And if you don't know your mythology, you're going to miss the boat on a, a lot of the, the meanings behind this stuff. So that's why it's important to understand uh, and learn as much about the ancient mythological tales as you can so that maybe you catch the inferences and the symbols being used, the message being conveyed, because you see, it's not always obvious on the surface. But if you know what to look for, you could find hidden messages, much like uh, Jay Widener here and Vincent Bridges went through and they discovered, hey, you know what, if I'm reading through this chapter in Falconelli, I notice he has certain words italicized. So they put this, they put two and two together and decided, let's look at this and see what kind of hidden message comes up. And lo and behold, they find this connection pointing back to the epiphany. The Feast of Fools, the Feast of the Donkey. So what is this conundrum? Let's get into it. It says, solving the conundrum. This is the next part. How do we unravel Falconelli's first conundrum? We start by looking at the significance of the one solid date given us. January 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany. To the early church, the Feast of the Epiphany, which marked the arrival of the Magi, the marriage at Cana and the baptism of Jesus by John was much more important than Jesus' nativity. For some sections of the Christian community, such as the Cathars, the Epiphany was the most significant moment in the church calendar. Some obscure secret seemed to hide behind the juxtaposition of these three events, a secret that threatened to change the very concept of Christianity as taught by the official church. So let's pause for a second there. The Feast of Epiphany, January 6th. This marks the arrival of the Magi. Now think about that in context of what happened here, January 6th, 2021. That whole farcical event that supposedly took place, this insurrection. This was a ritual invoking the arrival of the Magi, the marriage at Cana, and the baptism of Jesus by John, all together in one new ritual. See, this is how these folks work. They will leverage some huge ritualistic type of event into these various things that happen in this world. They'll orchestrate this into a ritual, a type of a spell of sorts to cast on the American people, for lack of better terms. So this is what was done. That's what that whole January 6th event was all about. Giant ritual. Much like the September 11th ritual, much like the moon landing ritual, and much like the recent death of the queen ritual and the return of the king ritual that just took place here. And I'm sure it all ties together in some way, shape, or form. But uh, let's continue on with the topic for tonight because we're going to discuss the idea here. And you could go back and listen to my show, Epiphany for a New America, where I recognized January 6th as the date of the Feast of Epiphany and the significance of that and the things that it uh, kind of foretells for the future. Uh, but we're going to explore further down that line of thought by exploring back further in time to the roots of this Feast of Epiphany and where it truly comes from. 
where the alchemical roots of it lie, and we can maybe get some more answers. So let's continue reading. In this conjunction of symbols, we find a cluster of very revealing clues. There is a sexual component in the marriage at Cana, supposedly the holy couple's wedding night, as well as in John the Baptist's acknowledgement of Jesus as his son during the baptism. The visit of the Magi is a symbol of the larger spirit cur- spiritual current and a nod to the original Illuminated Ones. going to pause for a second there. The original Illuminati, the, the Magi of old, the ones who originated these ideas within the mystery schools, uh, which later became perverted and twisted and turned all different ways. But, uh, you know, still by and large, they still call themselves the Illuminati uh, to this day and think they're the Magi. They call themselves the Magi. All these grandiose titles they give themselves. But anyway, this is the underground current of the alchemical uh, knowledge base that's come forward through today. That's what's being referred to here when he says the larger spiritual current and a nod to the original illuminated ones. The Epiphany symbolizes a much older tradition than its Christian gloss, and as such, was very disturbing to the church, which retaliated by shifting the focus to Christ's nativity. There is no biblical basis for the date of the nativity, and what gospel evidence there is suggests Jesus was born in the late fall, not in midwinter. The early church had no traditions or celebrations of the nativity until the 3rd century, and such celebrations didn't become common until the 4th century. It wasn't until the 5th century that the date officially became December 25th, which was chosen for reasons of religious politics, not any sense of spiritual or historical correctness. The act of saying a Mass in honor of Jesus' birth, hence Christ's Mass, or Christmas, on the birthday of his most powerful pagan rival, Mithras, was plainly and simply an attempt to absorb and redirect the rival cult's followers, in effect saying that Christ is more powerful than Mithras because he supersedes him. It also undercut the importance of the Epiphany, including the Magi as an afterthought to the Nativity instead of as the focus of the story. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. The Magi... The alchemists of old were central to this story, and uh, rather than being told as being central to the story, they're now an afterthought. The, the story has been altered from the original, and it is recognized now that uh, these magi, they, they weren't that important in the grand scheme of things, and they were just there to offer lip service to Christ, right? That's the kind of the story we get from the biblical interpretation of it at this point. But uh, what they're telling you here is the alchemical stream, the spiritual current that underlies that is the important aspect here. This is where a lot of the hidden knowledge has come forward, is through this type of an avenue. So let's read on here. And this uh, points out the importance of the Epiphany date. Uh, as far as where it comes from in its roots that are older than the Epiphany story. But the Feast of Epiphany remained a popular semi-pagan festival. In the 11th and 12th centuries, the Feast of Fools was revived, and swiftly it became a kind of alternative religious expression. The first guilds, or organized brotherhoods of free tradesmen, developed as sponsors and promoters of the festivities. Within these guilds were many heretical ideas, some of which would surface centuries later as part of Freemasonry. 
The church, of course, saw these pageant guilds as little more than secret conclaves of unrepentant pagans and heretics, and did its best to restrain them. The Feast of Fools was connected to the Epiphany through an earlier Feast of the Donkey or Ass. Held originally between January 14th and January 17th, this festival honored the ass Mary rode to Bethlehem and which stood by at the manger, as well as the ass she rode on the flight into Egypt. This ass was also combined with the ass on which Jesus rode into Jerusalem and with the prophetic ass of Balaam from the Old Testament. In the oldest forms of this pageant, the king of fools appears as King Balak, who summons forth the prophetic ass. As the Feast of the Donkey shifted to the pre-Lenten carnival period, the king of the asses, or the king of the fools, was grafted on the survivals of Saturnalia and settled on the Epiphany. This shift at the height of the Cathar heresy and the cathedral building boom suggests that the influences at work within the church were no longer completely orthodox. And I'm going to pause there, folks, for a moment. Here's the crux of the matter. Okay, so this whole idea of the Feast of the Donkey, the Feast of the Ass, the Feast of Fools, the King of the Fools, the King of the Asses, who was coronated as the new president in America. Is he not the King of all Asses? Seriously, this guy is the fool. See, he's playing his part and he knows it, and he's willingly playing this part, see, because uh, if you want to look at this from a game theory type perspective, and we'll look at it from an esoteric game theory type perspective, in, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. so now we see what came about in 2020, and uh, that was when they played their trump card, and now they're biding their time, right? And they've given us the king of the fools, to rule America, to help drive the world into collapse. You see, it's all about ushering in a new era, a new world order. And they'll take these different ideas, they'll utilize the principles that they know, the timing of things. January 6th, one of the low points in the winter months, one of the lowest points within the winter when people's minds are at their lowest point in the year. And they orchestrated this event which turned out to be a massive circus, didn't it? And, you know, people still question the authenticity of the events that happened there, as do I, because something's not right about the way they present it. They're not telling us the truth. It's been known ever since that day that, uh, at the very least, people opened the doors and let them in and then stood down and let them go in there and parade around in this world's worst insurrection. Uh, which, you know, amounted to nothing, and they broke it up within a matter of hours, which that's not how a true insurrection works. So the whole thing is, is you know, fallacy on the face of it, and they know it, and we know it, and they know that we know it. But still, they will push the facade, because this is the Feast of Fools, folks. This is what they've been setting up, and it's right there. The date that they picked to even do this just flaunts it in your face, and the various aspects of that date relating to the epiphany and these older traditions the feast of the ass the feast of the fools feast of the donkey you can see all the symbolic connections that are made here because now we have this party this political party represented by the ass in charge here 
ushering us in to rulership from the outside. You see, they're, they're, they've handed over the, the sovereignty of this nation to an outside group. Now, this was done long ago. This was all planned long ago. But they're actively doing this right now. It's gone from a passive-type phase into an active phase of the passing over of power here. So let's continue reading on, and we'll, we'll make some more connections. This festival, or hermetic fair, signified, in its total reversal of churchly authority, subjecting the ignorant clergy to the authority of the disguised science, the hidden and undeniable superiority of an even more ancient spiritual current. This gothic spirituality was symbolized by the king of the wise fools, whose coronation on the Feast of the Epiphany, celebrating the tangible evidence of Jesus' messiahhood, his acclaim by the Magi, his baptism, and his first miracle made the point of his precedence and authority even clearer. This is the original great king of the Jews, the one whose line Jesus was merely restoring, Solomon the wise, builder of the first temple. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. They're trying to invoke the archetype not only of science, disguised science, this Gothic spirituality, that represents the symbol of the king of the wise fools, uh, who they're calling here Solomon, Solomon the wise. They're invoking the archetype of Solomon, and that is very much an archetype, folks. Solomon, the allegedly the wisest man to ever live, the wealthiest king to ever live. That's what the claims are made in the Bible and other places. So Solomon, this archetype, represents a new type of leadership here. See, the king of the wise fools, the king of the fools, he's wise enough to recognize that he's a fool. So he gives power and authority over to Solomon, the Solomonic archetype. So he's abdicating his authority and power back to Solomon, the wisest of all. And this could be interpreted in a lot of different ways, folks. I think there's a some different groups out there behind the scenes that are running things. And uh, there's always been this talk of a council of wise men led by a Messiah-like leader uh, within the, the auspices of the New World Order. And this is how the Antichrist kingdom will come about. So there's all this talk of this kind of stuff. There's been for a long time. There's been a lot of speculations with a lot of this. So essentially, the symbolism being conveyed here with our current January 6th event. It's the invoking of the old Feast of the Fools, the King of the Fools abdicating his power back to the Solomonic King. There's very much symbolism involved here, and I hope I'm not losing people on this, but let's continue reading on here. Jesus, it says here, the original great King of the Jews the one whose line Jesus was merely restoring, Solomon the Wise, builder of the first temple. This is a symbolic restoration of the temple. And what are we told about the restoration of the temple and the rebuilding of the temple in the biblical narrative, in the religious context? That this is something that will happen with the reign of Antichrist. And, you know, we could know the time that we're living in. So maybe we're witnessing a symbolic type of rebuilding of the temple. But the temple this time is not a religious place. 
nor were the Gothic cathedrals, remember. It was the public forum, and it was also politicized by people of the day. As it says here, the trade guilds, the corporations of the world, they corrupted the Gothic cathedrals, the temple, the rebuilt temple. Let's keep these things in mind, and let's continue reading on here. Falconelli points us in that direction with his curious mentions of the land of Saba, or Kaaba, and its mystifiers and image makers. The land of Saba is, of course, Arabia, and the eastern portion of the Horn of Africa, Eritrea, and Ethiopia, home of the Sabaeans, ancestors of the Arabs, and the original builders of the Kaaba, the Holy Cube at Mecca, the Sabaeans were probably worshippers of a mother goddess along the lines of Sibylle in Phrygia, whose name may in fact have been adopted from the Sabaean original. The Kaaba of El, Sibylle, is certainly the concept behind the sacred stone of Mecca, seen originally as the vulva of the mother goddess, Alat, and throne of her son, the L, and that's spelled capital E-L, folks, in the sky, or Allah. Saba is also the home of the Queen of Sheba, the original, perhaps, of the Black Madonnas. And it is this reference that Falconelli wishes us to see in his curious metatext clues. Following his thread of clues, we come to a single original source, one that we have discussed before, an 11th century Arabic alchemical work entitled Mother of the King by one Abu Fala, or the Son of Reason. As noted already, the work entered the late Bahir tradition in the 13th century through Rabbi Shlomo, who lifted part of it, uncredited, for his own alchemical text, The Gates of Heaven. Abu Fala's reference to King Solomon's book, Hamaspan suggests that it was an early version of the great mystery text of the Bahir. In this work, according to Abu Fala, Solomon relates how he learned the secret of alchemy from the Queen of Sheba or Saba. I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So, understand the Queen of Sheba or Saba. This is a symbolic interpretation of what could also be seen as the archetype of Isis in the Egyptian mythology. The Queen of Sheba relates back to Isis, the Isis myth, the goddess of magic. As if referencing this obscure text, which stands at the juncture point of all the traditions and currents we have been examining, from the Bahir to the Cathars, from the Templars to the Grail romances, were not enough, Falconelli's metatext clues also direct us to an even more obscure work in the Golem tradition that spun off from the Bahir and the Sefer Yitzirah. Gonna pause for a second there. The Sefer Yitzirah. Have you ever heard of the Sefer Yitzirah? It's a Kabbalistic text that goes back into Judaism, and in the Sefer Yitzirah, there's formulas recorded for building a golem, a soulless automaton, a being without a soul. Are you seeing some connections coming together here with things going on in the modern era? This is definitely a type of uh, invoking of an archetype for the transhumanist notion of things here. 
for artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence would be a type of golem. So that's what, you know, my interpretation or one interpretation of these things, uh, you know, coming to fulfillment here or what's being invoked here in the modern era could be uh, because they need that artificial intelligence to be the control system for the new order of the ages that they're trying to put together here for this control grid they want in place. But let's continue reading here, and you could draw your own conclusions from some of this. I know a lot of the mystical connotations probably escape some of us. I, I, I'm not picking up on all the key things here myself either, so don't be fooled into thinking that I know something you don't. I'm just pointing out things I've noticed, and perhaps you can dig a little further and find your own interpretations of different meanings here and see how it relates to the modern era and the events that have happened here. Because in my view, this whole January 6th debacle that took place in, in 2021 was a ritual to bring in a new type of power uh, to build the golem, so to say, here. So let's, let's continue reading his comments on... Image makers and mystifiers echo portions of the anonymous 12th century work Sefer HaHaim, or the Book of Life. Written around 1200, contemporaneous with Robert de Boron's Grail romances, this curious work directly connects the Gullum tradition of animating matter with the main current of Jewish alchemy in the Bahir. In this work, we are told that the secret of animating matter concerns the alignment of the Merkaba, the triumphant chariot, and the appropriate constellation. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So it's all dependent upon time, a particular time, right? That's what's being, you know, intimated here. Let's read on. Dust is gathered from this alignment and is then used by all the witches and magicians of Egypt to animate statues. This was, in fact, we are informed, the method used by Aaron to animate the golden calf while Moses was busy on Mount Sinai, and the technique was still used in India and Arabia, according to the anonymous author. This work is also unique in that it represents an older form of gullum making that does not directly relate to the methods described in the Sefer Yitzhara. This older form is related by way of Rabbi Shlomo and the other provincial Kabbalists to the alchemical and eschatological implications of the Bahir. The Sefer HaHaim seems to be the one remaining manuscript in which these connections can be found. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. I am not familiar with that work, the Sefer HaChaim, uh, but uh, I will go exploring and looking for it to see what other kinds of connections can be found there. Focanelli goes further, however, by emphasizing the word sabbat as a spinning top, the Hebrew dreidel. This spinning refers to the whirlwind of the mystical experience and the spinning of the celestial mill as the movement of the sky grinds out time. This concept is an important one in the Bahir. Falconelli's insistence on connecting these metaphors with the Feast of the Epiphany forces us to consider the significance of that moment in time. Is there an astronomical and eschatological clue here as well? Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. I think so. I think January 6, 2021 was an important astronomical and eschatological time. And they did something with that ritual timed to that event. They 
orchestrated that ritual at that appropriate time to invoke these various archetypes that we're talking about here. The idea of the golem, the shifting of power, the king of the fools giving away his power back to the wiser, the king of all wisdom, the wisest who ever lived, Solomon. Solomon representing the archetype by which they will build the artificial intelligence control system. Solomon. They'll, they will imbue it with wisdom. It will have no soul. It will be a type of golem in this type of uh, ritualistic fashion. With the wisdom and intelligence and guidance of Solomon, the archetype that is Solomon. So these are the kinds of ideas, I think, that are underlying the whole thing as to why the ritual, why they're using this whole narrative of insurrection to do politically expedient things and to give our sovereignty away to a system, not a particular person or to a particular group of people, but to a system, an artificial system, an artificially built system with no soul, no animus to it, and this is a hugely important idea, and I think this is what's going on, and I will have to explore some more of this trail. But at any rate, let's continue reading on here. Indeed, there is, but we must step back again to see it. Falconelli draws our attention to the vernal equinox, the point from which we measure the precessional age. The vernal equinox is now moving from Pisces to Aquarius. As a little more than 2,000 years ago, it moved from Aries to Pisces. In the medieval text, The Mother of the King, which Falconelli is citing, we are told of a mysterious image that could foretell the future that was required before the stone of the wise could be used for transmutation. This image could be a blueprint of the processional process showing the Merkaba points, the celestial alignments for the Sefer HaHaim, but why the insistence on the epiphany? Could there be something marked by the, that date, January 6th, that has a significance in the larger pattern of precessional mythology? In the 2nd and 3rd centuries BCE, the vernal equinox fell on the cusp of Aries slash Pisces, and the winter solstice fell on the cusp of Capricorn slash Sagittarius. A thousand years later, due to precession, the winter solstice fell in the middle of Sagittarius, as it is now, another thousand or so years later, it falls on the cusp of Sagittarius and Scorpio. January 6th is 15 days after the winter solstice, and around 1100 fell on the former winter solstice point, the cusp of Capricorn Sagittarius. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. Remember Capricorn. This is the premise to my most recent book that I released back in February, The Demic of Pan, Breaking the Natural Order. I theorize in that book that uh, it seems what's going on is these people, these dark occultists who run things, are working feverishly behind the scenes because they're trying to skip over the energetic influence of the age of Aquarius and skip directly to the energetic principles of Capricorn. So think about that as we continue through this. And I know if you're new to the show here or you're new to my work, you might be having a hard time maybe following along here. But there's a trail that can be followed and, and can be seen on how these people think. And it has a lot to do with studying the various aspects of what they teach within secret society groups. And these are the kinds of things they teach. They call them the occult sciences. They call them soul science they call them many different things, the secret teachings, the secrets of the ages. They teach a lot about this. 
and I think this is a clue here. The Feast of Epiphany is then marking the same precessional era, the age, noted by the vernal equinox in Aries slash Pisces, except that its rise to prominence in the 12th and 13th century seemed to be marking more than just the original winter solstice point. We can also see it as a way of counting down to the arrival of the next precessional age with the vernal equinox on Pisces slash Aquarius. The millennial notions of the era seemed to have been sparked by noting this significant point. When the cusp moved across the epiphany, as happened in the 12th century, a crop of new millennial prophecies emerged both in the Jewish Kabbalistic groups and in the Christian communities. Both the Elijah the Prophet visits that sparked the publication of the Bahir and the prophecies of Joachim of Flores are connected to this secret event. Joachim, Joachim in fact, dated the beginning of the third segment of this zodiacal age to 1260, which is just a little over 10 degrees of precession from the next cusp winter solstice alignment, which is currently in progress. The sudden and almost desperate boom in cathedral building appears designed to climax at the end and beginning point of Joachim's ages, 1260. Certainly, in the case of the almost incredible 26-year rebuilding of Chartres Cathedral, some prominent but unspoken deadline forced the completion of the work. The cathedrals of Our Lady, perhaps, were intended to house the spirit of the new age, the age of the Holy Spirit, according to Joachim of Flores. Falconelli, then, in his very first meta-context conundrum, supplies us with all the clues required to solve the mystery of the cathedrals, but to uncover that secret, to find the disguised science hidden in the cathedrals, requires an intellectual quest of the highest order. Falconelli plays fair and gives us at the very beginning all the clues we shall need to interpret the hidden message, but we must do our part of the work and carefully follow those clues. I think I'm actually going to cut off the reading right there because I have a lot more to explore before I could expound further down this trail, but uh, Jay Widener and Vincent Bridges laid out some very important information here uh, that I intend to follow down the trail on to get perhaps to uh, a little bit more of an understanding as to what's being invoked here. I just find it that it cannot possibly be coincidental that uh, this huge event, this much overlooked event here by the average American, this January 6th debacle that went down, the world's worst insurrection, as it were, it's being used in a way in order to bring about a new system. It's a ritual. It's a marking point. They did it on that date on purpose. There's something important about that date. And there's something important about them doing it on that date in 2021. And I've gone ahead and I recognized the pattern, as I said in an earlier episode I did. And I would suggest if you're listening to this, go back and listen to that one first. It's called Epiphany for a New America, uh, where I first discovered the connection between January 6th. And I recognized it for what it was. It was an homage to the Epiphany idea. And there's various things that... uh, I was able to lay down as far as, uh, um, you know, foreseeing some things to come in the future with that. So I laid that all out. Well, here, this takes me further down the path to understand that that was not just a chance 
occurrence that this whole thing came about on January 6th. There is something special about that date, and it goes much deeper than the traditional Christian epiphany story. It relates back to older times, to the king of the fools, the king of the asses, the feast of the asses. And uh, as we said, it draws lines of intent back to the Kabbalistic practice of making the golem. And it also draws the esoteric lines of intent to imbuing this quote-unquote golem idea with the power of King Solomon, which is another hugely important idea within occult circles. Anybody who's done any study in the occult knows that King Solomon is a highly revered figure in occult philosophy. He was said to have all kinds of uh, magical power and uh, uh, different abilities like that, different intellectual abilities and stuff like that that's far surpassed many of the other occultists like of all time. It's an important idea, so they're they're going for the whole gamut here, in my view. It looks to me like they're trying to set up this system, this, this artificial system, imbued with the power of Solomon, this soulless system, this golem of sorts, uh, animated dead matter, and this relates back to the idea of the reign of dead matter, as Michael Hoffman calls it, same thing, uh, that's what these occultists practice, and they see it as being something that's desirable for their, their end game here. Uh, so that's how I view this. That's that's what I see going on. So they've set up the King of the Fools, and we're ruled by the King of the Fools right now, who is leading us in the parade <laughs> down the circus to give over the power to an outside system. And I say system because this is not just handing over power to a particular group of people or to a particular person. This is handing over power to a system, an artificially contrived system built in the the, the semblance or the, the image of the golem. This is artificial intelligence, folks. This is who's going to rule the world, the artificial intelligence. That's what they've been setting up. This is what the Antichrist is. The artificial intelligence given animation through the transhumanist singularity. Sound a little far-fetched? Stick around a few years. I don't even know how many years it'll be. These plans have been well underway for a long time. And uh, if you look into any of this type of occult philosophy or these, these mystery school teachings and stuff like that, it all points to the same thing. Now, this trail that was laid out here by Falconelli and identified by Jay Widener and Vincent Bridges here really connects the dots for me that uh, this thing that I noticed those couple months ago about uh, January 6th being the date of the Epiphany and making the connection there in an esoteric way, this tells me in no uncertain terms that that wasn't coincidence and that I wasn't wrong. My intuition about that was not wrong. This truly connects the dots and verifies some things for me. Uh, so I'm going to explore more of this avenue of thought, and I encourage you folks to do so too, because it's important. Even if you don't believe in any of this stuff, I always caution people, even if you don't believe any of it, if you think it's nonsense, keep in mind there's people in positions of power in this world that very much believe this stuff and act upon it, and the things they do to act upon it will affect all of us. So it's important to understand what their thought process is, what's their motivation. Because if you understand that, then you could counter some of these things that they're they're doing and they're planning. So 
that's the importance of this. And I think it's a huge tell that even Falconelli did not miss the idea of the importance of January 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany, the Feast of Fools. He pointed this out. This is an important event that points back to older alchemical traditions. And this was actually crafted in stone in the Notre Dame Cathedral, a textbook of alchemy for us, a textbook to stand the test of time so that people who maybe pick up the trail and have the intuition can recognize the symbol, recognize the archetype behind the symbol, and maybe be able to point at events in the current world and say, this is what they're leveraging. This is the archetype they're leveraging. This is the idea they're leveraging. This is the energy, the energetic principle they're leveraging against the people. And that's what's going on, folks. And there's only a handful of people out there that recognize this on that type of a level, on that spiritual level, that occult level, because it always ties back to the occult with these people in positions of power. They're a bunch of dark occultists that run things here. That's what's important to them. So they, they utilize these principles in everything they do. And you could deny it all you want. It always invariably leads to two places. I tell people this all the time. I feel like I'm a broken record. If you follow this invariably back as far as in history as it goes, you'll always find the ancient mystery schools and the secret society groups and the occult. And if you follow it forward to its invariable end in the future, you find the transhumanist singularity. It's the fulfillment of the great work in the view of these dark occultists that run things. It's what they're aiming for. It's what they want. And they see it in their grasp here with the advent of modern technologies. And what does Falconelli call it here? The hidden science? Hmm? Is that what he called it here? The hidden science. Disguised science. Sorry, that's what he called it. The disguised science. It's the same thing. See, the science, the, the quote-unquote science that they're selling us, the, the modern technologies, all of these uh, different things that we see as being state-of-the-art, electronics, computers, fancy stuff, it all has occult origins, folks. All of it. The scrying mirror you carry around in your pocket. It's all occult. It's just been framed up with different types of descriptive adjectives to uh, more accurately fit into our modern paradigm. To uh, please our modern sensibilities. We don't believe in something as you know archaic and backwards as magic. But we believe in science, don't we? Same thing. Disguised science. There's These occult principles underlie all of it. And it's been going on for a long time. And uh, when you begin to recognize the patterns and the symbols, you could start to pick some of these things out and have a little, little bit better understanding of what's truly going on in the world around us. So, you know, with that being the case, I thought this would be an interesting topic to bring up tonight uh, because it furthers along what I had noticed, and, uh, you know, kudos to Jay Widener and the late Vincent Bridges for being able to decipher some of what Falconelli laid down here. And, of course, hats off to Falconelli for actually having the huevos to put pen to paper and write a book 
pointing out to anybody with eyes to see what the symbols in the great cathedrals truly represent, and it's an alchemical path. It's the alchemical underground stream, pointing backwards in time, pointing forwards in time. And if you could recognize the symbols and recognize the archetypes that underlie the symbols, you could understand a little something about how power is wielded in this world. And you could recognize what's being done. And I'm pretty sure that's what I, through intuition, was able to ascertain by looking at the idea of the January 6th debacle and recognizing, hey, there's something important about that date. That's the date of the Epiphany Festival. Maybe there's some kind of a, a connection there. And sure enough, you always find more, don't you? Uh, so, uh, you know, this synchronicity, like I said, really kind of uh, validates, in my view, the things that I, I've noticed and uh, gives me more reason to think it's not just coincidence or, you know, I'm, I'm not just a nutter. There's an actual esoteric connection there, a real one that's been leveraged on. There's a real energetic principle that's been leveraged on. Now, what will the outcome of that be? Hard to say. I gave you my two cents as to what I think it is. I could be totally wrong. I reserve the right to be totally wrong about everything. Uh, you know, I'm no different than anybody else. Just a guy who uh, has the good sense to recognize a pattern when I see it and has done a little bit of reading and research and study into their hidden secret language of symbology and has been doing more research into mythology. And I've been trying to share that with you guys. Uh, so I hope you find value in that information because there's not many people out there talking about this or making these connections. Not many at all. And I think these are the important connections that need to be made in order to truly recognize the spiritual battle that we're going through in this day and age. It's more than just, you know, happenstance, folks. There's a real spiritual warfare going on right now. And this is all part of it. These dark occultists, they leverage this stuff against the people. And the people are ignorant of it. They have no clue it's going on. They won't believe it. They don't believe it. The cognitive dissonance kicks in. They don't want to think in those terms. Because that's backwards and archaic, isn't it? That's not what science says. Well, guess what, folks? <laughs> they've leveraged science against you. That's what they've been doing. So that's the bottom line here. That's the crux of the situation. But anyway, uh, I'm going to end the broadcast right there. I thank you for tuning in. I hope you found value in this discussion tonight. And I hope you could uh, go ahead and do your own research into these topics. Uh, especially, look at Falconelli. I know it's kind of hard and garbled to, to read through if you don't have a, a base understanding of a lot of the symbolism in there. And even for somebody that has that, it's very hard to follow. Uh, because, you know, if you don't have the proper context, it's hard to find the roadmap there. But uh, if you keep plugging away at it, eventually you'll notice connections. So it's, you know, a work that's important here. And I would say, uh, pick up Jay Widener's book. He helps you uh, muddle through what sounds like a convoluted mess at times when you're looking at the works of Falconelli and others. It's all about finding that old alchemical trail. That's the important thing. There's a lot of information that's important that's conveyed through these alchemical roots. And that's the crux of the matter here. And we could recognize the archetypes for what they are 
and be able to understand what's going on, how it's being leveraged against us, and maybe do something to fight back, having recognized that. Now, what that looks like, I don't know. So, But I, I would say we all need to be able to recognize these things for what they are, recognize it as a spiritual battle, and maybe, just maybe, if we make more people aware, we could find solutions to these problems they're putting us through and find a better way, a better future for our kids. Uh, anyway, folks, thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night. Introducing the new home for free speech, Free World FM, the alternative to the alternative. 
keep on talking in the free world. That's freeworld.fm coming soon.